Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I am Marcus Robertson, and I am thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Shayla Sullivan, uh, who is with Children's Mercy Kansas City, a child and adolescent psychiatrist. Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's exciting to talk. Absolutely. Uh, so I guess to start us off, uh, just can you give us, uh, our listeners, a quick run through of you know yourself and your background in the in the industry? Sure. So like you said, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, which means that my training first went to medical school and then I focused in my residency on psychiatry. And then I did a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry because I wanted to have that specialization. So I treat kids um, that present with a variety of different um, challenges that they're facing. I specialize in eating disorders. Um, I have a background in working with kiddos with Tourette syndrome. Um, but the majority of kids I see present either with ADHD, anxiety, depression, something in, under that large umbrella of mental health concerns. Okay. Um, and, and we have, you know, obviously seen quite a rise in, in those, uh, in those types of things over the last two years with the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and, you know, kind of since that time, what, what issues are you spending most of your time, uh, thinking about these days? Oh, goodness. I think one of the biggest challenges that we're looking at is how to meet the needs of the community. I recently took over as chief of psychiatry in our division, and the demand is huge, and we simply can't meet the demand. So that's that's a really hard thing to face. I think the good news is that many people in the community are identifying that there is risk and that the kids that they're raising are having some struggles. And so people are seeking care, which is a positive. But being able to meet the needs, I think, is tough. Um, in terms of what people present with, I think anxiety and depression are some of the most common concerns that we're seeing, particularly in the pandemic with the social isolation and the lack of routine structure that we um, were depending on so much prior to that time. Um, but of course, we also see some more serious concerns, particularly when those conditions go untreated. So seeing an increase in young people presenting with suicidal thoughts and plans. And, and so, of course, that takes a lot of resources to be able to address those appropriately. Yeah, terribly concerning the, that, that last little bit. Um, what are you seeing with uh, children and adolescents as far as, you know, kind of those more serious concerns, suicidal thoughts and plans, uh, are, are treatments uh, having to adjust at all for to, to uh, accommodate the new trends and the social isolation and everything? Sure. I, I think one of the biggest changes we're seeing is that children are presenting younger with these concerns. And we've seen increases not only in thoughts and plans, but even with outcomes, with actual deaths among the younger population. If you look at data from um, young Black youth, we see that they have had significant increases, even in the youngest, from 5 to 14 years of age. Um, so that's, that's really concerning, and I think something that not everyone is aware of. Um, of looking for those warning signs and knowing that we really need to take it seriously and then we need to seek help earlier rather than later because we know that if we intervene early with a smaller problem, very similar to an analogy with cancer, you know, if you catch it early, you're more likely to be able to address the problem fully and have a full recovery. Um, but when problems go on without any intervention, often it's a lot harder and you need a lot more resources to, to try to help the young person. Hmm. That does make a lot of sense. And speaking from my own experience, I actually cover uh, behavioral health for Becker's and um, 
I, I, uh, use therapy as well. I believe, you know, a lot of people could benefit probably more than make use of it. And so I would, I would absolutely agree catching it earlier rather than later, I think is the way to go. But you mentioned, uh, young black youth rates, you know, the increases in deaths from these suicidal thoughts and plans. What's your take on why the racial disparity is there? Well, that's a great question. And I think it's a complex one to answer. I don't think there's any one particular reason, but I know historically it was thought and the, and it was clear in the literature that there was actually lower risk of suicide in the Black community. And that has changed substantially. Um, I know that there are disparities with regards to accessing healthcare. And so I think that's one of the barriers that we run into. Um, I'm working with a grant right now in Kansas City, Missouri. So I'm interfacing with a lot of leaders in the Black community, and they're really doing a great job of educating me about what they see. Um, there is a tradition in some parts of the Black community that um, seeking out support through your faith community is the way to go, as opposed to seeking out help through the medical community. And so I think there's a lot of initiatives right now to try to change that so that of course, your faith community can be supportive and helpful, and we want to make sure that people get the appropriate medical interventions. Um, of course, we know that there's structural racism and and lots of things that young children are enduring that could also lead to the bad outcomes that we've seen in the Black community. I also just want to point out young girls have seen a significant increase in recent years. And uh, we also know that the sexual minority youth, so LGBTQ plus young people also have much higher rates than the average population. So um, there are several communities that we need to take um, special care of when we're identifying and identifying risk and just being aware that because of um, those risk factors, we need to make sure that they get the resources they need. Mm. And not every population responds to the same treatments in the same ways. That's right. That's right. We just published a paper about the validation of um, one of the screening measures to assess for suicide risk in the Black community. It was found to be a validated tool. Um, but that is really important that we don't want to assume that one size fits all. And we know that we need to have more representation in our research so that what, what interventions we're testing actually benefit the community and not just one subset of the community. That's, that's actually been a big focus for me in the last couple of years with our research project Prepped and Ready, really trying to look at how do we bring this to more diverse communities so we can really get feedback on making sure that what we're doing is helpful. You know, it's one thing to have a, a good idea that seems like it's going to benefit people, but until you measure it, you really don't know for sure. And I think that's a really important piece of the puzzle. Mm. Yeah, theory crafting versus actual implementation can be, can be so different. And you you mentioned kind of uh, the, the Black community uh, using faith-based measures in, in treating their own, you know, members who are suffering from depression. And you mentioned kind of wanting to not replace that with with uh you know medical or psychiatric treatment psychological treatment um but you you were saying if i understand correctly uh introducing those kinds of things in tandem with you know using using the, your faith as as you uh as you see fit working in conjunction instead of in opposition to each other 
Sure, sure. Like it, it doesn't have to be either or. It mm. can be both and. and. And that was one of the things that I was meeting with some leaders last week and they talked about um, a retreat they were holding. And one of the sessions was on what happens at your first therapy visit. And I hadn't really thought about that, how uncomfortable many people are the first time they interface with a mental health care professional because they don't know what they're getting into. You know, people have these stereotypes of Freud and are they going to make me lay on a couch and talk about my dreams? And so really just trying to get down to the nuts and bolts of what what does treatment look like and how can it be accessible, like you said, to the average person? You know, I think sometimes there's this idea that someone needs to be uh, extremely ill or disturbed to benefit from intervention when really I think many people would benefit from therapy just to help with how do I cope when things are overwhelming and stressful. Certainly the pandemic has introduced a lot more of that to all of us. Um, and, you know, how do I, what do I have control over in my life? Because of course we can't control everything. Yeah, no, not, not even close, especially in recent days, it feels like, um, Right. And yeah, you mentioned that um, it's it shouldn't be a case where you seek treatment only when you're in dire straits. And I think that kind of falls in line with the larger trend across healthcare, moving from you know interventional medicine to uh, you know trying to keep people well, you know, head off those issues before they happen in the first place. Exactly. Yes. I think catching it early is so important. You know, when a, when the pandemic began and I was seeing patients from my home, you know, my telehealth patients doing psychiatric follow-up visits, often I identify a child who could benefit from seeing a psychologist and getting some help with coping. And frequently the parent would say to me, well, let's, let's wait till this pandemic thing is over. I, I, I don't want to have to do telehealth or we'll just wait. And I remember saying to so many families, let's not wait. We don't know how long this is going to take and wait lists are long and we don't want to waste time. But I think there's a natural tendency. I'm a parent myself and I think no one wants to believe that their child is having one of these struggles. Um, it's really hard to accept that. But I think when we're able to accept it, then we're able to move forward and really lead the way for our kids with getting the help that they need. And, and kids really need that. They need a strong parent that says, that's okay, you're struggling. We can get you help with that. Just like we would if you had diabetes or you had cancer or any other treatable condition. How important is it to get the parents, you know, comfortable with seeking treatment themselves, you know, behavioral health treatment themselves, kind of setting the example or getting more comfortable with it before uh, raising their children to seek that treatment as well? That's a really good question. You know, um, often I think parents have their eyes opened to the idea of treatment in my office. Uh, I've had times like when I was in the Tourette Clinic, I remember one young man that came in with ticks. He had these abnormal involuntary movements, but really that's not what his main struggle was. He could tolerate those. It was his social anxiety that was really impairing his day-to-day -day functioning. And as I provided education to his mom and him about the interventions that could be helpful, and then we started treatment and things got so immensely better for him. I remember his mom coming back and saying, I want some of that. I thought this was normal life. And now I'm realizing I've been struggling my whole life with these issues. And so, yes, I spend a lot of time 
trying to normalize for parents. Hey, things tend to run in families. You know, I'm short. That runs in my family. We all have things and we're genetically predisposed in some areas. And that's not our fault. But what we do about it is our responsibility. And I think parents have a real opportunity to role model for their kids help-seeking behavior. And the fact that it's it's not your fault that you have this challenge, but you have an opportunity to take care of it and to do something about it. And so I think that's key. A lot of kids, you know, don't like to feel like, oh, I'm the only one in my family that has a struggle. And, and often we kind of laugh about it and say, well, are you the only one that has a struggle or does your family not talk very openly about these things? Because it's pretty rare that just one person in a family, you know, presents with anxiety or ADHD. So I think Opening up that conversation is important. I usually do it in the family history when I talk to parents about family history and make it very clear that I'm a resource for them as well. And frequently what we find is when parents get their own supports, everything goes better. And I think most parents can relate to that, right? I know that if I'm in a good place, my whole family, you know, the evening goes better. But if I'm, you know, hungry or irritable or stressed, you know, it's going to rub off and we all impact each other. Yeah, that uh, it just seems to be it seems to follow very logical, um, and here's to hoping that you know this this kind of plays into a trend of snowballing in the right direction. You know, more people seeking that care because it's being paid more attention to, and then uh, you know that having positive effect down the road. Um, but of course, I mentioned uh, you know increased funding and things like that, increased attention. So there's a lot going on in behavioral health these days, but. What would you say you're most excited about right now looking forward? Well, gosh, there are so many things. I think the fact that the stigma is decreasing and that the expansion is happening in a way that I've never seen before when it comes to providing care, that for me is very exciting. So here, particularly at Children's Mercy, we're having a huge expansion and hiring people um, with, you know, introducing new programs trying to be creative about better ways to serve the community. And so that's exciting. Um, you know, the mental health crisis didn't just start with the pandemic. It definitely preceded it. Things were getting worse before the pandemic, but certainly there is increased focus now on how do we address this problem? You know, just having children languishing in the emergency room is not the answer. So I do think that's big. And the other piece I would say is I feel like parents are feeling more empowered. That's something I'm seeing in my research time and time again, that when you give parents or caregivers the tools and you educate them about, hey, here are some actual changes you could go home and make tonight to make your house safer, people are really willing to do that. And so to me, that's very exciting because there's some research that's very clear that if we could limit access to certain things in our community, we could save lives. Uh, what are some of the things that uh, limiting access to would have those effects? If so if that. you look, yeah, if you look at research on suicide prevention, one of the interventions that has the most data behind it is called means restriction. And I don't use that term with families much because it's not a very, I don't know, it doesn't roll off the tongue very well, but I like to call it safe storage. So making the things in your home that could be used in a suicide inaccessible is one of the best ways to prevent suicides. And unfortunately, it has not been 
widely used in our country. It has been used in other places. So if you look at Sri Lanka, where there's a lot of farming and a lot of use of pesticides, their suicide rate fell by 50% when they implemented safe storage, making pesticides inaccessible to the average person. Doesn't mean they got rid of the, all the pesticides, but they just meant you had to lock them up. You couldn't have them just laying around your house. So when you look at our country and you look at the fact that depending on the year and the region, about half of the suicides are with a gun, then we know that limiting access to those guns, or if it's a population where medication overdose, you know, we've seen huge increases in overdoses, that would make a huge difference if those items were not quickly accessible. So that's really what my research is focused on, is providing that education to parents, first of all, to make sure people know it. Not everyone knows how very lethal and common this is, that people have quick access to firearms and medications at home. But then the fact that you really have responsibility to secure them at home and you can't. So we pair our education with actual toolkits to help people make those changes. I was just reviewing the data this morning and it's really exciting. I mean, in our first paper we published, more than half of parents disposed of their old medicines and they locked up the ones that they needed to keep at home and they used pillboxes, uh, more than a third, to lessen the amount that was locked up um, so that people could stay on track with taking their medicines. Um, you know, we found that more than 40% of participants with firearms in the home were willing to unload their guns. And we know that that's protective if you don't have quick access to a loaded gun. So I'm excited because I think that our community is very concerned about the increasing suicide rate and willing to make some changes to do something about it and to prevent them. That's fantastic. Those are those are really encouraging numbers. And did you did I hear you correctly? There was a 50 percent drop in the suicide rate in Sri Lanka after uh, the, the means mitigation was introduced. Yes, yes. And I could give you countless examples. And Israel, when they didn't allow the soldiers to take their firearms home on the weekends, the suicide rate fell by 40% on the weekends. So there, there's this continual theme, you know, suicide unfortunately happens in every culture around the world um, with the different means or different ways. But if you limit access to the things that people use in their time of desperation, they are more likely to survive and be here tomorrow and to have that chance at recovery. So to me, that's a very exciting and important thing to know that it's not that people are so determined to end their lives, it's more that they are in a window of time where the risk is greatest. And if we can keep them safe while they get through that window, then we can get them help tomorrow. And I think that's that's really exciting. Well, you did say that, uh, you know, it seems like if you give your parents, if you give the parents of these children the tools, they will use them. And it looks like those numbers really, really back that up. Yeah, I think um, it's it's been pretty exciting and impressive to work with the community. I think parents really want to do what's best for their kids. And I think sometimes we're inundated, myself included as a parent, with all of the advice that we see, you know, online and all that you should do this and you should do that for your child. And sometimes it's a little hard to make sense of, but what are the most important things, right? Because I can't do everything. Let's be honest. I cannot do every single 
wonderful intervention for my child. But there are some that are so critically important. So I say that in my office all the time to parents. I say, this is a hard conversation. And I never want to look back and wish that we had had this conversation. And I think people get that, you know, they really, when it comes down to it, they want to know what are the most important things to keep their family safe, you know? So, I mean, that's why we have our seatbelts that we wear and so many different interventions that we do to keep our families safe. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Sullivan, thank you so much for your insights. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you as well. Well, I, uh, I look forward to having you on again soon. And to hear more from Becker's podcast, please visit beckershealthcare.com slash podcasts.